Amen. I hope you have enjoyed our special music for Resurrection Sunday this morning. Amen. Amen. They've all done such a wonderful job. Thank you so much to all who participated. Thank you to uh, uh, Miss Melissa and Stefan and Hannah. To uh, and uh, also, wasn't it great to have Miss Merlin back on this piano over here? So, so Amen. It was wonderful. So as you know, we are here this morning to talk about the resurrection of Christ. I was uh, uh, one of the ones who was preaching, uh, one, of the, one of the ones who was preaching, one of the ones who was singing this morning, although the songs did preach this morning, but uh, uh, one of the ones who was singing, uh, I asked him if he would, uh, um, if, uh, he would like to sing, and, and he said, sure. And uh, what, what, is, uh, what are you going to be talking about on Sunday? And I said, uh, the dimensions of the temple. <laughs> and he said, uh, okay. I said, dude, it's Easter. What do you think we're going to be talking about? So, so anyway, a little fun at his expense. But I think I just gave it away when I said his. So anyway, but um, it is... Uh, it is good to have all of you here this morning and worshiping with us on this most holy Sunday of the year. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. Because this day of the year is the most holy of all the days of the Christian calendar. You know, usually we give so much credence to the birth of Christ. Uh, and we go all out for Christmas, and Easter is just kind of that other holiday that we do. Uh, what's amazing is that in the original church, in the first church, it was actually the other way around. It was, it was uh, Easter that was the was really the big celebration, and and celebrating Jesus's incarnation at Christmas time was just kind of an add-on that they put on later. This is, I believe, the most holy day of the year in that we do commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every year it's tempting to talk about if this is something that we can be assured of. Are there other things that we can look at and know for sure that Christ has risen from the grave? Let me just tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most historically undeniable, verifiable event in human history, and we are certainly glad for that. You can have absolute full confidence in the, the resurrection of Christ. And, um, and now that we have our apologetic expert, uh, Brother Stephan, I will leave those kinds of questions to him. I'll yield to him for that. But this morning, what I want to talk about is, is what are the implications of it? What does it mean for us? Doctrinally, theologically, what is the resurrection to us, and I just want to just say a few things from Acts chapter 17. Just to give you a little example, this is one of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. It is one of the only, in fact, it is the only sermon that he gives that is to a completely unbelieving crowd. 
in uh, Acts chapter two, you have Peter giving a sermon to believing Jews who believed in the, when I say believing, they believed in the old covenant. And now they need to know that it is the new covenant. In Acts chapter 13, you have Paul preaching in a synagogal environment where they are believers in the word and they need to be converted over to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 20, you have Paul speaking to established elders and established churches and that he is strengthening them for his departure. But here in uh, Acts chapter 17, you have Paul in Athens, Greece, which is the intellectual center of the world in which he is talking to a group of people that have had absolutely no experience with the God of the Bible whatsoever. And beloved, today in our church, and our nation, we are moving further and further away from an Acts 13, from an Acts chapter 2 environment, and we are moving closer and closer to an Acts 17 environment where we are reaching a culture that has absolutely no prior impact, no prior connection to the God of the Bible. And there are all kinds of ideas out there of who God is and what he is and what he wants and and all of these various things. And the number one uh, objective argument we have for them, the number one thing we can bring to them is to bring the assurance and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've never seen a lot of need to give big apologetic defenses of the Bible. I think the word is self-attesting. When the spirit moves on the heart of a person and you give them the word, uh, it will do its work. And yet at the same time, it is helpful to help them see what the impact of the resurrection is. And in order to see that, we need to know what it is in our own lives. We need to be absolutely firmly convinced of its centrality of the Christian faith. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 17 and verses 30 and 31. And this is what the word of the Lord says through the historical sermon of Paul. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, and we're going to talk what that is, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And um, let me just kind of say right off the bat that the phrase that we're really zeroing in on is that last phrase where he says that having furnished proof to all men by raising him, referring to Christ from the dead. The the resurrection is the absolute proof, the absolute certainty, the absolute assurance of our faith. I, I love that song that Tim sang. And you may not know this, but I taught him everything he knows on guitar. Okay, I shouldn't tell stories in the pulpit, but, um, but anyway, um, I love that song he's saying because Christ is risen because we know he is risen. Therefore, we know that we are going to rise and we are going to be with him in paradise. We are going to be with him in the new heavens, new earth for all eternity. And we know that we have new life right now that Christ is our lives. And we are assured of our faith by the resurrection. 
It is the proof of everything that we hold to. And there are three very important truths that the resurrection provides the, tr- the proof for in this passage. And so we're just gonna go through them very quickly. Number one, in verse 30, it says that the resurrection, it proves our former ignorance. It proves our former ignorance. Look what he says. He says, therefore, having overlooked these times of ignorance. Now, I wanna talk about what our former ignorance is. Uh, please understand that, that when I say this and when Paul says this in the text, it's not as sharp as it comes across in, in English, okay? Uh, when we call somebody ignorant today, we're calling them stupid or, or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying our former stupidity. What I am saying is that there was a time in which we were without knowledge. Now, when it comes to Stefan, I might be saying that. I'm just kidding. So, um, but when it comes, but in that time before Christ, we were without knowledge. That's, we were simply unaware of the truth. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 17 and you go back to verse 23, Paul is walking in Athens and he is uh, seeing all of these statues. He's seeing all of these idols and there's even an idol there that is to the unknown God. And he tells them here, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, that is the God that I am proclaiming to you. It is the time of our lives in which we have no understanding of the nature of God and now his redemption that is available for us. We have no understanding of those things. It's the time and the lives of all of those who live prior to the saving understanding of God and Jesus Christ that we do not know God, whether we think we do or not. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 18, Paul says this quite vividly. He describes what he's talking about. You may wanna write this down for later, but he talks about being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. I want you to notice what it all includes there, that it is being darkened in our understanding. It is excluded from the life of God. And often because of sinful, hardened hearts, people choose to remain that way. People choose to remain that way. Beloved, we're not just talking about a lack of understanding, but we are talking about the ignorance of Christ, the unawareness of redemption, the not knowing of God that leads and is the corruption of our hearts. It leads to all kinds of corruption. Those who do not know God in Christ are controlled by the desires of the world, worship of other gods, gods that are fashioned according to our own desires, gods that we make in our image, gods that look like us. Beloved, it's not a coincidence that the gods of the world look, like, look a lot like the cultures that they come from. That's not a coincidence. And by the way, prior to coming to Jesus Christ, it's not a coincidence that the God you served looked a lot like you. That's not a coincidence either. Because we all have the propensity, just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, that they, it wasn't enough that they wanted to be in the image of God. They wanted to be like God in the same way. We all have that propensity to not want to surrender to God as he is, but to make God in our image and essentially worship ourselves. That's what we all do. 
And the Bible refers to those times as ignorance. It also leads to contempt of others. Luke 18, 9 says that those who trust in themselves for righteousness treat others with contempt. Leads to all of that. And all of that former ignorance, beloved, trust me that the resurrection is the proof that we were in that condition. The resurrection is the proof of this because in all other religions, no matter what we find, no matter where they come in the world, all other religions, listen, you will find wise sages. You will find codes of ethics. You will find rules to live by. You will find rituals to follow. You will find beliefs to know. You will find uh, sacred writings. You will find all of this other stuff, but the one thing you will not find is a risen Savior. You will not find that anywhere else. That is unique to us. Christ rose from the grave to vindicate everything that he said about who he is and what he came to accomplish. So why does God tolerate that ignorance for so long? Because he's patient. It says he overlooked the time of ignorance. Beloved, don't don't misunderstand that. God would have been perfectly just At the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, he would have been perfectly just to condemn them for all eternity. I hear people talking about God has to be fair. You wanna know what fair is? You wanna know what justice is? Is God condemning us all for all eternity? The fact that he saves anyone is an amazing measurement of his grace. That's fair. I don't want fair. I want grace. I don't want justice. I want mercy. You can keep your justice. You can keep your fairness. I don't want it. Amen? But you see, heretics will look at this verse and they'll say, you see, God can just overlook your sins and he can forgive you Regardless, that's what they'll say to this verse, but, but that's not what he does, and that's not what this is saying. God is not ignoring our sin, but God is patient. He is patient. He does not bring immediate judgment upon us. He does good to all humanity, even those who are in rebellion, and this is what we call common grace. It's why you can go to the doctor and and he can heal you regardless of whether or not he's a Christian. That's why you can go to your mechanic and he can fix your car regardless of whether or not he's a Christian. You know, when I go to the doctor, I don't, I mean, I care about his soul, but I also care about whether he knows medicine. And in all honesty, in the moment, I'm a little more concerned about that, to be honest with you. Maybe I shouldn't be, I don't know. But that's what we call common grace, that God is good to all. God is good to all. And God is patient, and he overlooks these times of ignorance. But make no mistake, this time of patience is coming to an end. This time of patience is going to stop. And let me just speak one moment to, the, to those of us who know Christ, to those of us who believe in Christ. What does this mean for us? And we're gonna, we're gonna talk to unbelievers in just a moment. Let me talk to believers. What does this mean for us? In 1 Peter 1.14, he says, as 
Listen, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance. If you are a Christian, stop living like you're not. If you are a Christian, if God is God, then serve him. If God is God, then love him. Stop following the Baals. Stop surrendering to the gods of the culture and start following Christ. If you belong to Christ, if you've been converted, you're now a believer in Christ, don't live according to your former ignorance. Don't live according to your former desires. Strive to be like Christ. Pursue Christ with all of your heart. He died and rose for you. How can we live as if this is no big deal? How can we live as if this is just a rite of passage, something that, that we held to when we're children and then once we're adult, we've, we've outgrown God. How can we do that if this is real? If this is real, how does it not change every aspect of our lives? If this is real, then how does it not have an impact on everything we do? If this is real, then how can we pretend that it is of no concern? And if this is real, how dare we keep this to ourselves? If this is real, then it needs to make an impact. Don't live according to your former lust that were yours in ignorance, but as obedient children strive to be like Christ. It proves our former ignorance, but it also proves our responsibility. What's our response to this? In verse 30, he goes on to say that God now is commanding that all people everywhere repent. What's being commanded here? What does it mean to repent? There's a lot of confusion here today. I, I actually watched an interview. It was an older interview, but it was an interview with two of the most popular preachers in America today. One of them pastors the largest and fastest growing church in America down in Houston. And I use that word church very generously. I won't mention his name, but his initials are Joel Osteen. Him and another gentleman by the name of Joseph Prince were in an interview with someone on TBN and they addressed the issue of why they never speak of sin or repentance, why they never talk about it. And Prince says that every time Joel or me preaching the word without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time from thinking this way negatively to thinking positively because the word repentance, it means change of mind. Well, but according to this definition, repentance happens every time we go from being grumpy to being happy. Repentance happens every time we change our thoughts from this negative thought to this positive thought. According to Joel Olstein, in order to repent, we all need to go join the Optimist Club. And just be optimist. But that is not biblical repentance. That is not what the Bible means when it says repent. It means to turn. Turn away from your self-love. Turn away from your own ways of salvation. Turn away from your own confidence to save yourself. From your ignorance. Everything we just talked about. And embrace the true knowledge of God. That is what repentance means. In fact, a great summary of the doctrine of repentance, just turn a few pages over to Acts 26, verses 19, and specifically verse 20. Acts 26 and verse 20. 
Paul is preaching to uh, Agrippa. And he says here in verse 20, he says, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, watch this, that they should repent and turn to God. There's a few things we need to say here and leave that verse up there, Mark, because a few things we need to say here, actually there's a lot of things we should say here, but we've only got time for a couple. Number one, that they should repent and turn to God. Understand that repentance is not just a change of mind. It is turning from sin and self, your old ways of salvation, whatever form that took, and turning to full trust and dependence in Jesus Christ. That is what repentance in is. And then, understand, repenting sin and turning to Christ are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Can you imagine on your wedding day where, in, where you are giving your vows to your beloved bride or your beloved groom and you say, I take you now to be my wife with all the other girls on the side. Would that have worked? No, what do you say? Forsaking all others, I take you as my wife. And beloved, you cannot turn to Christ and not repent of your sins. You can't do that. It's the same thing where if, my, if, if I am sin and you are God, and if I am turning, what am I doing? From me, I'm turning away from sin, but I am turning to God. But notice it's the same thing. It's the same action, right? That's why the Bible speaks of repentance and faith interchangeably because it's describing the same thing. It is the conversion of a lost soul from his own ways of salvation, from his own sin, his own self, and he is turning to Christ in salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, describes it. He says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is biblical repentance. And that's what God commands all people everywhere to do. And then notice, go back to uh, 2620 for a moment, Max. Notice what he also says. He says that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Beloved, repentance is not just changing your mind. Re true repentance results in a changed life. It results in a changed heart. True repentance will produce change. That's why the Bible calls it fruit, because it's the outward appearance of an inward reality. I know an apple tree is an apple tree, because apples come out of it. I know an orange tree is an orange tree because lemons come out of it. No, because oranges come out of it, right? Beloved, I know I have truly repented. What? Because of the fruit that is being produced. That's what true repentance does. A new heart shows itself a new life. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, you must repent and believe in the gospel. God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. How do we know that? Because Christ rose from the grave. Because Christ rose from the grave. He did not, rise, he did not die 
buried for three days, rise again on the third day so that he can let everybody know, you're okay. You're okay. It's all right. It's all good, homie. YOLO, you know, whatever. Take your pick. He didn't rise from the grave to tell you that. He rose from the grave to tell you that he is the Lord and Savior, the only name by which under heaven men must be saved and you must repent. That is why Jesus rose from the grave. That is why he is alive today and offering himself. This means that our salvation, beloved, hear this out. The resurrection proves that our salvation must be an act of God. We cannot save ourselves any more than you can raise yourself from the dead. You cannot raise yourself from the dead physically. You cannot raise yourself from the dead spiritually. It must be an act of God. And that is why the resurrection proves that we must repent. We must completely and totally rely upon him. It's absolutely vital, absolutely important. Why? Because it proves the urgency. In verse 31, it says, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Beloved, this is urgent. It's urgent. You must respond now. Do not wait. You must repent and you must do it now. Why? Because God's appointed three things in this verse. He's appointed the day. He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. In fact, if you look at this, it says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. But if you look at that word will and look in the Greek, it's actually more urgent than that. It says he has fixed a day in which he is about to judge the world. It's urgent. It is, it is imminent. It is close. It is soon. No one knows what the day or hour will be, even the time or the seasons. But mark my words, Christ will return one day. And it won't be on a donkey. It, it'll be on a war horse. It will not be in humility. It will be in power. It will not be in peace, but it will be in conquering. He will come again and make all things new, put aside all rebellion and culminate his kingdom. He will do all of that. That day is coming. We don't know when. But we know one thing. It's at least 2,000 days sooner than 2,000 years sooner than what they said here. So if it was close back then, it must be getting really close today. Say, Randy, Paul said this 2,000 years ago. It hasn't happened yet. Why? Remember what we said? God is patient. God is patient. But the day is coming. Do not delay in coming to Christ. Do not delay. What if it, you might say, well, Randy, Christ may not come back in my lifetime. Well, if, if that's the case, you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna die. And you have no idea when that is. Just this week, our community lost a wonderful young man in his 20s, newly married, had his whole future ahead of him. 
and he passed away. No one expected it. He woke up that morning having no idea that it was his last time to wake up. Beloved, you don't know when that day is coming for you. But you do know that God has commanded you to repent. Do not waste another day. One way or the other, we do not know how much time we have. And he has also appointed the standard. It says he will judge the world in righteousness All the world will be judged according to the righteousness of God. His righteousness is the standard by which we must live. And the scriptures tell us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. There is none who on their own seek after God. The fact is, is that no one has and no one will ever live up to that standard except for one, God himself, God the Son, Come as man, Jesus Christ. And because of that, God has appointed the judge. He's appointed the day, he's appointed the standard, and he's appointed the judge. It says that he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. John five twenty two. Jesus says, not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Jesus Christ will come back and he will judge this world. He has authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. He is the king. He is the righteous Lord. I want you to look at Psalm 96 for a moment. Psalm 96. I don't know that Paul has this psalm in mind when he's preaching this this word but he would have been very familiar with Psalm 96. He, it would have informed his understanding of the judgment. And in verses 12 and 13, it speaks of this judgment. It says, let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy because Yahweh, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I want you to understand that there is a two-faceted judgment here, that he will judge the world according to righteousness, but he will judge the people according to his faithfulness. You see, one group will be judged by his righteousness and they will understand that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and they will suffer the consequences of their sin. But there's another group called his people who will be judged not by their sin, but by his faithfulness. Yahweh's own faithfulness will be by how he judges them. Who are the ones who are judged by his faithfulness? Well, look in verse five. All the gods of the peoples are idols, those who recognize that their gods are idols. And in verses seven to 10, respond to him in worship and repentance. Beloved, when Christ comes, he will judge the world by his righteousness, but when Christ comes, he will judge his people 
by his own faithfulness, the very righteousness of Christ placed to our account if we believe in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins and trust him as Savior. So the question is, which group are you gonna be in? Are you gonna be in the group that falls under his righteousness and you will suffer? Or are you gonna be in the group that will fall under his faithfulness and you will be saved? Which group will you be? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you on the broad way or are you on the narrow way? Are you going through the broad gate? Are you going through the narrow gate? I said I was gonna come back to God's patience. I saw already talked to the, to the believer, but if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I wanna talk to you for a moment. God is patient. He has been patient with your times in which you have been unaware. You have been unresponsive. You have ignored his calls for you to repent. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, you say, Randy, this was written 2000 years ago. Peter answers that. He says, listen, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Beloved, he is patient with you because he wants you to come to the knowledge of repentance. He doesn't want you to perish. Oh, sinner, do not think that the fact that God has not judged you yet for your sin is proof that he is satisfied with you. He is not. He is not okay with sin. He will judge sin, but he is patient. He does not desire for you to perish, but he is giving you time to repent. Do not think that just because that time hasn't come yet, that God is satisfied and that you're good. But beloved, respond to his patience. Respond to his love. Respond to his mercy. The resurrection shows us that all the other ways to God are false. There's only one risen Savior. There's only one risen Lord. And every other religious teacher in the world has one thing in common. They are not him. Only Jesus Christ saves And if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, you have not repented. Let today be the day. What a great day. The day of the resurrection of Christ to be the day that your soul is resurrected and you have new life in him. What a great day. Don't make Easter about eggs or about bunnies but make it about the day that you came to Jesus Christ in full salvation for your sins. He, he earned the righteousness that you need, the very righteousness of God. And then he died on the cross to suffer your penalty. And then he rose again on the third day, the day we commemorate today, the third day he rose again to prove to you once and for all that he is the savior you're looking for.
that he is the God of the world. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he commands you to repent. And he offers you forgiveness and new life in him. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the fact that you are so patient with us. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's someone here who does not know you, maybe they came to church today because it's Easter Sunday and that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to put on their Easter Sunday best and they're supposed to come to church. And then they're planning to not come back again until maybe perhaps Mother's Day or Easter or Christmas or something like that. But Lord, don't let them walk away here today without having heard your word. Don't let them walk away today without having heard the hope that we have in Christ. Don't let them walk away without knowing that they are accountable for their sins. But you are a wonderful and gracious God who offers a living Savior to us. And because we can put our full faith and trust in him, we can have salvation. We can have peace. We can have joy. And we can know the love of God that surpasses all understanding. Father, I'm not adequate for these things. There are are people who could have said it as much better than I. Father, I pray you'll work through my weakness so that we will see your work done here today. Let's sing this wonderful anthem together. Alleluia, alleluia. If you don't know the song, you'll recognize the tune.